Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for grace in this time to expound a very simple concept to your people, but one that's become very clouded in modern times by technology and uh, means that were not previously available to the generations that came before us. Help us to recover these timeless truths. Help us to not be distracted by the devil, to understand the need for dialogue that it remains now, the need to really reach people with the message of the gospel person to person. And I praise you and I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Uh, from the very beginning of my ministry, I have treated pragmatism as it is applied to Christian ministry as the devil, because it pretty much is, or at least it is effectively the devil's right arm, especially in the West where it has been used by him to tremendous avail. Now, uh, pragmatism is like the atmosphere in which we exist, so a comprehensive list of examples would be of an impossible length, but here are some drawn from your own culture, things you have, I am sure, observed. We have, in the West, bouncy houses outside of churches. We have vacation Bible schools that are heavy on the vacation and light on the Bible, and lighter still on the biblical gospel. We have age segregation within the church. We have segregation into different personal interest groups, according to life stations. In the church as well, we have sermons that exegete Blockbuster movies instead of scripture. We have music that begs for a dance floor and strobe lights and sometimes receives that which it begs for. We sometimes have coffee tables instead of pulpits. Again, not a comprehensive list, but it gives you an idea. And of course, none of those things have any root or origin in scripture. But they do them because they work, or at least that is what they say even though now that we're out of the pragmatic religious boom of the 90s and early 2000s, we can see that they very much did not work, at least if what works has anything to do with what endures because these churches and movements built upon these pragmatic means have not endured. They have blown away like the chaff because chaff is all that they ever were. The problem is that doing whatever we suppose works is a flagrant denial of what the Bible teaches us actually works which is the gospel. 
And that's why in the many times that I've addressed this or been confronted by somebody and responded to this issue, I have responded with Romans 1.16 and just quoting it. But I'll do that here with you now and on into verse 17. Paul there, of course, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. So then the perennial ministry question of what works is answered by the gospel, not the show, not entertainment, not gimmicks, not door prizes consisting of Dunkin' Donuts gift cards, just the gospel. And the gospel writ small is the message of entrance into the kingdom via Christ and him crucified, and the gospel writ large is living in the kingdom in light of Christ and him crucified, but entrance or living always is to be the gospel. However, bouncy houses and pizza parties and tattooed, cringy caricatures of Christian preachers and all the rest of that stupidity aside, maybe when it comes to the delivery of the gospel to unbelievers and also believers, we should have a conversation about what works, or at least what works best. But this conversation, unlike the ones about all that other stuff, needs to be had on the basis of Scripture and nature as created by nature's God, and in particular the nature of God's image bearers. What I mean to say is that because the gospel is communicated to people by people, what determines how people should communicate the gospel to each other should probably be consistent with how God has designed us to be best communicated to. And this rational position also happens to have the benefit of being totally in consonance with the examples from Scripture, because obviously the Holy Spirit as our Creator knows our natures better than we and therefore would, of course, lead his people to communicate in the optimal way on that basis. In fact, one of the clear providential reasons for Jesus being incarnate when he was and ministering at the point in history when he did was the near universality of the Greek language. Now, Hebrew is a great language to communicate narratives in, and that's why the Old Testament is almost exclusively written in Hebrew. Greek, though, is very much more specific, which makes it the optimal language to communicate deep doctrinal truths. Also, the fact that it was spoken throughout the entire Roman Empire broke down much of the language barrier and allowed for the explosion of the Christian faith because our faith is communicated in word. Now, am I like out on a limb here, or does all of this seem reasonable so far? And if it is reasonable that we should be communicated to consistent with our design and consistent with how our faith is communicated in Scripture, then perhaps, and here's the real point, perhaps every technological innovation in communication is not created equally and so shouldn't be pursued or relied upon equally. Maybe every new shiny object isn't worth pursuing after all. Perhaps we should first consider the design of a given new technology in light of God's design of us and the means by which his gospel was communicated in Scripture. And I'm not advocating the position that new is necessarily bad, just that new should be evaluated, at least. And to help you understand what I mean, and perhaps as a helpful exercise, let's consider the invention and advent of the printing press. You have this new means of 
disseminating the gospel into the world, in print form, en masse, is this consistent with the way that people are created by God to receive information and how our faith is uh, advanced throughout the world historically? Of course it is, because our faith is written, and this just makes that easier. It just makes it more efficient to put the word in writing. We have a long-form faith. And so if you can put it down comprehensively and people can read it, obviously this is in keeping with the way that we learn and the way that we learn about the gospel. And actually there was an ancient form of this prior to the printing press. It was just your brothers and sisters in Christ copying down as much as they could of Scripture and giving it to others or having it for themselves. You ever asked yourself the question of why there are tens of thousands of codexes and fragments of the Christian scriptures, and that is not the case with other faiths. It's because our faith is an evangelistic one, and so people took down as much as they could so that they could have that word which transforms souls with them, carry it with them for their own sake, and carry it with them for the sake of evangelism. But in summary, the printing press worked very well to advance the gospel because our faith is a written faith, and ingesting information via the written word is absolutely consistent with our design by God. Ergo, he delivered his message to us in writing in the first place. Okay, so now we're going to take that similar, a similar process of evaluation and apply it to TikTok, YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook, or any of the other sites like these. Do these best facilitate by their natures, and I mean by their natures, consistent with their design, the spread of Christianity? Are they built for deep learning? Well, sometimes they can be, primarily because of the presence of long-form content and links to it. You can put a link on all of these. As far as I know, I've never been on TikTok because I'm a grown man and I have some sense of dignity, but I gather that it's set up like the rest. We, though, we post our sermons on YouTube. We do that because that, again, is a long-form exposition of the Christian faith, which is what a consideration of the Christian faith actually requires. But the primary benefit of this is as a supplemental for our people in the event that they missed a Sunday due to sickness or travel or some other reason. And to lesser degree, though, still a, a significant benefit. It, it also helps people who are looking for a church. They can see and hear the sermons and so evaluate whether or not this is a biblical church and therefore one that they should attend. But by no means should we believe that we are truly competing with the deluge of satanic content on YouTube and certainly not as a matter of volume. Because while YouTube and other social media mediums are able to communicate the gospel, they are best suited by far to spread Satanism. Because the gospel spreads through mindfulness and Satanism spreads through mindlessness, which is fostered by distraction, and is distraction not manifestly the point of every homepage for every social media site in existence? For example, because I was on YouTube last night looking at uh, organic gardening videos, as I typically do, if you go to the homepage and you don't have a clear purpose in mind, are you pulled into deep dialogue and thoughtful consideration? Or are you sucked into a mindless and trivial pursuit? Very top of the screen, what comes up? Videos that are literally five seconds long. 
They are called shorts, I think. And then you scroll, and you scroll, and you keep scrolling, and you watch a few seconds of this and a few seconds of that. This is by design, the way that they have been created, because they need you to stay engaged, even though you're not engaged in anything that matters. Nevertheless, your engagement, though, allows you to be monetized through advertisements. In fact, the engagement is so meaningless that even advertisers have started to respond to the lack of meaningful engagement and are beginning to require a more thorough set of analytics. I heard this about Twitter, which I've never been on either. Um, but recently they touted like billions upon billions of views. Apparently that only involves that popping up on your screen and playing on its own without you even looking at it. So then let's ask the same questions that we did with the printing press. Are these mediums designed for the depth required to feed a person's mind with the things of God and to address the deepest needs of their souls? Eternal matters, such as that which we traffic in. Do these facilitate contemplation? No, the intended purpose of these, again, is obviously distraction. The Internet and other novel mediums for shallow communication made a lot of unfulfilled promises to Christian people and movements about spreading the gospel as never before, and yet in my lifetime, post the advent and rise of the Internet, the visible church has done nothing but diminish. And it sure isn't because of a lack of buy-in on our part. We have indeed bought in. An enormous amount of our resources and our time goes to this. And because time is a zero-sum sort of a thing, that meant a departure from actual conversations with neighbors in favor of this emphasis upon impressions and the likes and shares, things that were never meaningful metrics for our impact for Christ anyhow. And part of our error was that we skipped the should we part and we went right to the how do we. Now, I will admit that I am somewhat lacking in credibility on this subject given my absolute hatred of technology. I say that for Chris's sake so that I don't feel like a hypocrite. All right? The situation with me is so serious that I could be aptly nicknamed Analog Austin. I am a man out of time I am very much, therefore, biased. I'll acknowledge that up front. But not every bias leads you to the wrong conclusions, does it? And my conclusion on this matter is this, that because human nature has not changed, nor the kind of intellectual engagement fundamental to comprehensively understanding the gospel, nor the common use of real, in-the-flesh human fellowship as a bridge to Christ by God, that advancement in technology has not and will not ever replace the primary means of communicating the gospel as elucidated in Scripture, which are the reading of the Word, and not just in snippets, and the hearing of the Word in preaching, and not just in sound bites, and deep dialogue between believer and non-believer of the kind that generally cannot occur in DMs or shorts. And it is that last point that we will especially observe in our text today. Thus, the title of this sermon is Christianity is dialogical. It requires a dialogue. And with all this said and this direction established, look to Acts 17. We will begin in verse 1. We will go as far as verse 4 only today, stopping to expound and apply as we go. 
driving at the primary point just articulated, but as always, we will address the context and other observations from the text at Acts 17, starting in verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Uh, first, I want you to take note of the shift in pronouns once more. The we's and us's of Acts 16 have reverted again to they, as in they had traveled and they came, which means that Luke is no longer present with them to justify that first person accounting. Most likely he has remained in Philippi to give direction to the nascent church there, and in further support of that possibility is the fact that Luke was a Greek and so that uh, anti-Jewish sentiment that you saw being directed at Paul and Silas would not have been in effect with him. He'd have, hasn't, he'd have had an easier go of it there, and so it might have made sense for him to remain for that reason. But whatever the cause of Luke's absence, the we who remain, consisting of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, left Philippi at the urging of the magistrates, and they took what was called the Egyptian way. Perhaps this is something like the ancient Roman equivalent of our Route 66. It goes a long way. It connects a lot of important places to each other. But on their version of this, they end up in Thessalonica, which these 2,000 years later has had a major rebranding as Thessaloniki. One wonders why they felt compelled to change those two letters, but nevertheless, they have. Apparently, though, they've traveled to Thessalonica on the backs of some animal or another, as opposed to on foot, because they have gone quite some distance, about 100 miles, in a span of apparently three days, because the implication is that they spent a night in Amphipolis and another night in Apollonia, arriving in Thessalonica on the third day. So first day, 30 miles, second day, 30 miles, fourth day, 40 miles. This would be, of course, a tall order on foot under normal conditions, but having just been severely beaten probably would have been impossible. At any rate, they have traveled a long distance, and they are in a hard way physically. But if you think they're going to take the time to recover, I don't think you've been paying attention to their testimony thus far. No, immediately they launch into more evangelism, continuing in verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, those at the synagogue of the Jews, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and setting before them that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is that Christ. Now, I want to ask you all, have you heard the term apologetics? You heard that term? You have probably heard of it in the context of Christian apologetics, but it actually has a much broader and, and more general meaning. There are apologists of every imaginable kind, because all apologetics means is to make a defense of. The Greek word apologize means to defend. And so in this broad category, there are lots of good things to defend or apologize for, and there are, of course, bad things to defend or apologize in the Greek sense for. And as a Christian, if you wish to defend or apologize for good things that aren't necessarily Christ and Him crucified, that can be fine and good. Well, my point to all of you is that if the purpose of your apologetics isn't consistent with verses 2 through 3 of Acts 17, it isn't Christian apologetics. 
might be benign, might even be good, but if it doesn't preach Christ and Him crucified, it is not apologetics of the Christian kind. And this remains true even if the kind of apologetics is absolutely consistent with another point of Christian doctrine or teaching. For example, I want you to think about Christ, or creation apologetics. Even more specifically, biblical creation apologetics. Biblical or not, creation apologetics without Christ isn't Christian. Christless creationism is just a defense of something else, and that's called deism. I suppose theism also, which doesn't get you to God. Not the God of the Bible, not through Christ. So if you want to defend Genesis 1 and 2, you will have my full support. I am as enthusiastic of a supporter of that as you will find, so long as you also expound and defend Genesis 3, which has in it the first mention of the gospel, the first mention of a coming Messiah. And you know who understands this, by the way, really, really well? The Creation Museum folks in Kentucky. Because they preach Christ through all of that. Through the museum, through the ark. They get that the greatest purpose of defending any aspect of the Christian faith is making a defense of Christ himself. I.e., we preach creation because of Christ, and we preach creation as a bridge to Christ, and the same thing is true of all Christian apologetics, or else the apologetics being practiced cannot be considered rightly Christian. And I raise this for a reason, and that is because there are many so-called Christian apologists who never actually argue Christ. Some years ago, I had a professing believer send me a video that they thought was the bee's knees of some, a very famous Christian apologist um, winning an argument about the three laws of logic, which are non-contradiction, identity, and what's called the law of excluded middle. If you don't know those things, that's fine. The apologist won the argument. Matter of fact, I, I don't know that you could even say that he won the argument because it was like a 19-year-old kid that he was debating who had no idea what he was talking about anyway, so it wasn't much of a contest. But as I explained to the person who sent that video to me, this was not good apologetics. It wasn't Christian apologetics because he never got to the gospel. He just stopped at winning the argument. Let me use a, 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 an apologetics term, and it's telos, I mean from teleology, meaning purpose. The telos of Christian apologetics is Christ. If you leave that out, you have not fulfilled the purpose of Christian apologetics. So you ready for the encouragement that comes from all of this? Especially if you sat through that last bit and thought, huh? When I talked about the laws of logic, here it is. If you're one of the many dear saints who really don't understand that stuff very well, while I still hold to uh, all those truths and love the field of Christian apologetics, brother or sister, the good news for you is that what you really need to master is not cosmology, it is Christ. But when I say master, I mean master. You need to be able to prove that, to paraphrase Paul from verse 3, this Jesus whom you are proclaiming to the world, is that this and the only Christ or promised Messiah of the Scriptures. 
So do you know Psalm 22 through 24? Suffering servant, Lord who is shepherd, and the one for whom the gates of heaven swing wide. Do you know these passages? Can you expound them? Can you take people to Christ from them? How about Psalm 118, the culmination of the Hillel has in it the most quoted passage in the New Testament, that he is the chief cornerstone that was rejected. Can you explain that? Because you need to be able to. Isaiah 56 and 57, the tender shoot of Jesse that becomes again the suffering servant. Do you know these things? Can you explain and expound these? Because, well, there is no command for you to be an apologist per se. There sure is a command for you to be an evangelist. And if you can't prove that Jesus is Jesus from your own Bible, you're not going to be a very faithful one. And so the Lord then is not going to bless you as he did these missionaries with converts. And to see this, look to verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And next week, we're going to consider the different categories of people that were converted there. But now I want you to take note of the means of their conversion, which was dialogue. That is the word reasoned in verse 2, and it translates most directly in English to dialogue. Greek word there is dialegomai. This is face-to-face, in-the-flesh conversation about Christ And it must be said to this generation going back to the open that there is no substitute for this. People are created in God's image to fellowship. And in an internet age where fellowship has become more truncated and there are more false forms of it than ever before, this needs to be made clear. I'm not saying that sound bites and snippets, by the way, have no place. What I'm saying is that their place is not to be the primary means of giving the gospel nor are poorly constructed sloppy DMs, which is every DM ever. Matter of fact, when you come across one with good punctuation, you're offended by that, aren't you? That's how rare that is. To drive this point home, I want you to ask yourselves some important personal questions. How many of you were converted through an Internet meme? If you love Jesus, share this. None of you were converted through those. That is surprising. How many of you were saved through an online ministry? It might have actually happened. People have been. It does happen. How many through an online presentation of the gospel of some kind? That does happen. Some have been. How many through radio? That does happen. And in fact, I think there are a couple in this congregation for whom radio ministry played an integral part in at least their sanctification, if not their salvation. How many of you were saved through gospel tracts? That's not to say that gospel tracts aren't good and important. Of course they are. I will explain more about this later. And if I thought that they weren't, you wouldn't have some in the back there with that simple saving message on it. The point remains, I don't believe that there is one in this congregation of whom that is true. There are in other congregations, but it is more rare. Finally, though, how many of you were converted through in-person communication? That would be almost all of you. And this, by the way, still remains true of the newer converts in this congregation, all of whom 
our millennials or Gen Z, whom we are all told have the attention spans of squirrels and can't listen to anything long form and can't really engage in dialogue. Now, I typically eschew the what works approach to ministry because I abhor pragmatism, but this is really just an acknowledgement of how God created us as well as it is a recognition of the means of salvation in the book of Acts, which is primarily people talking to other people. In fact, it always is. It's either personal or it's preaching, but it's always that. And debating and reasoning and dialoguing. And these things may seem to us to be a little too analog and old-fashioned, but it happens to be nearly the only way that God saves people, even in the year of our Lord 2024, with all our technical, technological advancements. How sometimes a travel-sized gospel saves to the glory of God. And that's why one of the reasons that you use those gospel tracks, that short, simple message can and has saved people. But most of the time, the best use of the gospel track is when you can't hold a conversation. So you still have something to be able to give them. When you're in line at the grocery store, you're getting your cup of coffee, you have something that you can put in their hands that at least introduces them to the gospel. Well, my personally favorite use of gospel tracks is giving them to people at a place that I regularly go and will continue to go. So for me, this has been the gym, and it's led to more Bible studies than I can tell you, because I give them this track today, and it doesn't really mean anything to them, oftentimes when I give it to them, but then they know from that point that I'm the religious guy, so then when the Lord brings some circumstance into their life, they talk to me. I raise this whole issue because I remember being told when I was a part of the youngest group of adults in my particular local church, that the world was all going digital and that Christianity had to, too, or we were going to be left behind. There was a video presentation that was shown to us that promoted a certain ministry, and, and this is how it was presented to all of us. This is hip. This is happening. We have focus group this. I'm not kidding. This is what young people want, and I never saw Blair Witch Project. I only saw the commercials for it, and I, I didn't want to see it for a number of reasons, but I also didn't want to see it because I felt like it might induce a seizure in me. This was like that. It was, uh, Lydia was there with me, and uh, this, this gentleman, I'm trying to explain because they want feedback. So he, he's telling me, this is what your age group once, and I'm telling him, this makes me want to vomit. I am in this target demo. I can't focus on anything because you're at this shot for a second and then that shot for a second. And by the way, even if it was true that that is what young people wanted as communicated to them in a focus group, that would be irrelevant because the question is not what some focus group says that they want. The question is what is required in order to effectively communicate the message of salvation based upon the nature of people and the nature of the gospel message. Christianity is a long-form faith. It just is. It has to be fleshed out. It has to be given the appropriate amount of time to be explained. 
Most commonly, we require deep dialogue like the kind that Paul had with these people for three Sabbaths in a row. I'm not saying here not to use your social media to give the gospel. Necessarily. Maybe you ought to be off social media altogether if you can't handle it. But if you're on there and you uh, post regularly, you ought to post the gospel. What I am saying, though, is to rely too heavily upon such mediums is to deny human nature, which craves connection and requires thorough explanation, at least for anything good. The spread of Christianity requires this. Satan's agenda, though, is very much different. Okay, the, the devil spreads his message more, what's called mimetically, through mimicking. Okay, or as your mom used to say, when you do something stupid, that some other kid did that was stupid just because that stupid kid did the stupid thing. Monkey see, monkey do. They have a mob mentality. You saw this with the crowds at Philippi. I doubt that they even knew why they were angry or full of rage. They just have that as children of Satan and then something incites it and it spreads because they're not even thinking. Their faith is mindless while ours is mindful which means that in the overemphasis of internet outreach and de-emphasis upon in-person dialogue, we sacrifice the means that the gospel most spreads through and started using a means of communication that is not designed to engage the mind. It is, in fact, deliberately designed to distract it. And that is one of the reasons why Satan is so much more successful in using the internet than we are. Evil spreads best through bombardment. Whoever had a deep, meaningful conversation that led to the conclusion that they should cut their genitals off and pretend to be of the opposite sex, that doesn't happen that way. That happens through piece by piece by piece, a deluge constantly of the same horrible, evil ideas in snippets, in bursts, but just everywhere. Christianity, though, still spreads best through dialegomai, dialogue, because of the nature of our faith and because of our natures as image bearers of God. Oh, I actually fell into this trap at the beginning of my ministry. I was posting a lot, and I was spending a lot of time responding to responses to my posts, and I was doing this, by the way, with a sincere heart. But because the internet is designed to distract, it was largely just a waste of my time. And so the Lord took me away from that in time, and I understood that my resources belong to my local church. I'm not the pastor of the world. I don't even know these people that are commenting on my posts. I'm trying to help them, but I don't have the means to help them because that happens again face-to-face -face in local congregations. I know what your digital avatar thinks. I don't know what you actually think. And I know that your digital avatar is so holy you could walk on water yourself. I imagine, though, that the actual person is somewhat different. And I can't know that, so I can't help that person through those means. This is not the way that the Lord has designed his church, and technology didn't do anything to change that. So the exhortation that I leave you with is this. Go talk to somebody about Jesus. Go talk to somebody about Jesus. 
Think of ways to facilitate conversation and never ever believe that we can move past this because technology has taken us past it. It isn't going to. And by the way, much of this is born of cowardice and not so much a desire to even follow novelty. We don't want to talk to people anymore. It's anxiety-inducing compared to being online and being able to hide behind a screen to go start this conversation. It also requires more effort, more of our time. That's exactly what's required of you, though. All right, 2,000 years ago, your Lord found 12 men, and he poured his entire life into them for a period of several years. You're not going to do better than him. You're not going to shotgun this thing out in a meaningful way to 10,000 followers. Not at least in as meaningful of a way as you would to just 10 people. If we would go back to reaching a few people in a profound way, the spread of Christianity would advance far more so than it is through these means. Because again, these are not designed for us. Doesn't mean you can't use them. But you've got to have them in their proper place. And so if you've got a 90-10 split, 90% being in person and 10% being uh, online, that's the way that it would need to be. If you reverse that, though, and it's 90-10 the other way, you have a horrible problem there. That's not going to work. That does not honor the Lord. Find somebody, reach them. If you become a shut-in, and you're flat on your back, and that's all you can do, do it to the glory of God. But if you have the capacity to actually speak to people, speak to them, and especially the people in your own congregation, but also the lost. This is the way that our faith is communicated, always has been, always will be. Heavenly Father, praise you and we thank you for the simplicity of the message and the simplicity of how that message is spread. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you that at the fullness of time you delivered your son and that there weren't going to be any major changes that mitigated against the fundamentals of our faith and there still have not been. Lord, we thank you for the faithful word. And we pray that you give us grace as we reach out into the world to have meaningful conversations about your son with those who do not know him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.